The Edwin Smith Papyrus. Hippocrates. Aurelius Celsus. Galen. Archigenes. Claudius Galenus. Percival Park. Jean Godinot. Theodore Bavarian. Marie Curie. Ludwig Calvert. Janet Lane Clayton. Austin Hill. Richard Nixon. Harold Zurahoven. Chris Sweeney. Chris Hopkins. What do they all have in common? They all loved talking oncology. Hello, I'm Joseph Iskia. We've put together a podcast of conference highlights from the recent Prospect 2019, an annual event proudly supported and competently delivered by Janssen. The conference was held from May 17th to 18th in Sydney at the Hyatt Regency. So while the nation voted, a large number of urologists, radiation oncologists and medical oncologists voted with their feet and tuned in to some outstanding presentations regarding prostate cancer management. We kicked off the interviews with the convener, Phil Parente, who was busier than a termite in a sawmill, but very kindly gave us some of his precious time. To add to the authenticity of his heavy workload and the popularity of the conference, we intentionally caught up with him at one of the noisy breaks between sessions. Welcome to Prospect 19. As you know, Prospect has been going since 2014. It's been done yearly, organised by Janssen. It's a multi-modality, uh, multidisciplinary conference concerning the management of prostate cancer, both early and late. We, this year, we've been fortunate enough to have two esteemed international speakers, an academic urologist, Professor Marcus Grafen from Hamburg, Germany, and a well-known medical oncologist who's well-renowned in the treatment for prostate cancer, Dr. Hemisha Beltran from the Donna Faber Cancer Institute. We've got an esteemed organising steering committee from across all modalities in surgery, radiation oncology and medical oncology throughout all states in Victoria and hoping that you'll enjoy the two days and that you'll take a a lot from it. Uh, As you know, prostate cancer is ever-changing and Prospect 2020 will be even better. Let's kick things off with Declan Murphy and Andrew Kneebone discussing the role of radiotherapy for patients in the grey zone. What does this mean? Let them explain. I'm Andrew Nebone, one of the radiation oncologists from North Shore. I'm standing beside Declan Murphy. Declan you... Murphy, urologist at Peter McCallum Cancer Centre. Hello, Andrew. Greetings. That was a good session today, wasn't it? Yeah, no, I think it's exciting times from my perspective that technology is changing and imaging, treatment, systemic local treatments... And there's a lot of unanswered questions, so I'm enjoying it. Look, it is funny, and there's a whole bunch of questions to consider. But we were talking this morning about patients who either present with quite low-volume prostate cancer or have recurrences at quite low volume. But the first thing we all have to try and get our heads around is the role of novel imaging in this setting. Is Wouldn't you say, and you presented some lovely work showing that you've been interested in these low-volume recurrences or de novo patients for many years, but some of the data you showed extends back to the pre-PET imaging era. So you have a lot of pedigree in the area. What's your take on novel imaging and how it's affected your view of, I suppose, selecting the right patient that might benefit from treatment of the metastases. And we're very lucky to have Michael Hoffman here today. And we've embraced the new PSMA scanning. And we've only been available since 2014 in Australia. And so we've only had it for about four or five years. And to me, it's been a huge game changer in the practice. It's probably one of the most revolutionary changes I've had in my practice in my last 30 years. And we can now detect a full millimeter lump of prostate cancer. And we can use it for better staging assessing response, identifying different stages of the disease. So it's been a complete revolution from my perspective. And one of the real fascinating things is now when you can detect a full millimeter lump of cancer in a node or in bone or other parts of the body, what do we do about it? And do we embrace this new technology without proof that it changes outcomes? Raises a lot of fascinating questions, which I really enjoy. It does. And you know, I think we all got very enthusiastic about this imaging when these colorful lumps of cancer came along. And Australia, of course, has embraced this technology really 
really ahead of much of the world. But I think it's a, you know, it can be a seductress, can't it? You know, you have these nuclear medicine physicians turning up with their beautiful scans and they're turning this grayscale conventional imaging into, aha, that bright thing is the cancer. And so we've, over the past five or six years, um, you and I and others have been lured down this uh, path of going after these little colorful things. And I think, for sure, I agree with you that this sort of imaging has probably helped us select the patients better. But the overarching bigger questions I I still struggle with is, uh, are we overall, over for the next 20 years of this patient coming in the door, helping that patient? Or are we just layering in extra treatment? You know, by doing these scans, are we really helping? I do struggle, despite my own enthusiasm. And I, I wonder whether we'll look back in five or ten years and, oh, what were we all doing? You know, plucking out these lymph nodes or treating them with radiation and, and so on and so forth. When either one of two situations might have been better. Number one, do nothing with some of them. I mean, the pet physicians will tell us that. These small, stable lung nodules, you know, in, in lung cancer, leave them alone. Or number two, should we have just really ramped it up and intensified it with the other things we use in prostate cancer, like various systemic therapies? So I don't don't know. Could you look into the crystal bowl and look back and say, we were bang on what we're doing, selecting patients for metastasis-directed therapy, or we should have just left some of them alone or else just ramped up the, the systemic treatment? It's interesting. My conversations have changed. In 2015, when I had this new technology, I was really saying to patients, I'm hoping that I can treat this solitary metastasis that I can see and you can be cured. And that conversation is now change. I think we've got good data from our own unit and from other units that if we just treat just one solitary node that we or a little bone met that we can see on PSMA scanning, it's incredibly unlikely to result in a long-term cure. So I'm not offering that now to patients. But having said that, I am a firm believer that treating the lumps you can see with aggressive treatments like surgery, radiation treatment, and then using our better systemic agents to address microscopic disease, my gut feeling and How much do you believe in gut feeling that in the future, that's how we're going to be treating cancer? We combine local treatments like surgery or radiation combined with the better systemic agents, and they're getting better now. And I think we're going to be like a chronic disease. We can control it for hopefully decades and improve and maintain good quality of life. Look, I think you showed very nicely today. You're, you're, as usual, you're very self-deprecating in the way you reflect on these things, but you showed us the big difference between looking at data retrospectively and, and publishing it as you do with your academic group or going for this in a much more controlled prospective manner. And isn't that one of the, the key messages? We have to sort of draw the line in the sand, say when a new technology comes along, say we're going to start now and we're going to measure things prospectively and learn from that. And I think that's one of the strengths in Australia, all around Australia, some very good uh, prospective work has been done in this area. Next, I spoke with Hamisha Beltran, one of our international guests and medical oncologists from the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. She may have been worked hard by the organisers, giving more talks than a politician on the campaign trail, but she's going to make it easy for you with her key messages. If only our politicians could be so succinct and enlightened. Welcome to Sydney. I want to start with, in the newly diagnosed metastatic patient, how do you decide between the angiogen receptor pathway inhibitors that are now available and chemotherapy? So um, in the newly diagnosed metastatic hormone-naive population, we're using both abiraterone and ADT as well as docetaxel ADT for those patients. At this point, particularly for patients with high-volume metastatic disease, there's no head-to-head data, but the only data we have from Stampede really suggests that they're, they're similar as far as an overall survival benefit, and we're, we have a trade-off of toxicities and cost. In my mind, both of them are good options for high-volume metastatic disease. What's more challenging is in the low-volume metastatic disease patients, whether to give AR pathway inhibitors or docetaxel, the charted data suggests that 
patients with high volume disease benefit from chemotherapy and those with low volume disease do not. And the stampede data suggests that abiraterone ADT benefits both low and high volume disease. And so I tend to lean towards AR pathway inhibitors for low volume and for high volume, either AR pathway inhibitors or chemotherapy and really having a discussion with patients about the toxicities and the regimen and, and thinking about a number of other factors um, related to, to that. In the castrate-resistant setting, where we also use these drugs, now the landscape is changing. As we move them earlier, we often think about switching mechanism of action when the patient progresses in the castrate-resistant state. So if a patient had chemotherapy for hormone-sensitive prostate cancer to switch to an AR pathway inhibitor at the time of metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer, I think an open question is, are there patients that would benefit from sequential chemotherapy from docetaxel to cabazitaxel or um, sequential AR pathway inhibitors? And I think there's very lim limited data of what to do in the MCRPC state after hormone-naive metastatic treatment. There was a trial that I, I had showed today that was led by Kim Chi and colleagues from Vancouver um, looking at prognostic features in patients that had poor prognostic features, randomizing them to AR pathway inhibitors or cabazitaxel up front. It was a very interesting study, hypothesis generating that perhaps there are some features um, in the, the patient's cancers or the patient clinical features that might select patients for chemo. They observe more stable disease, clinical benefit, and I think we need you know, more, more data to, to really do this at this time. But typically, we tend to, to switch mechanisms of action. You chatted about clinical features that help you decide what treatment option you're going to use. You also focused on genetic features or genetic markers that are helping you decide. So what genetic tests should we be doing on our patients with advanced prostate cancer? I think what's really changed practice for me is the observation that germline mutations involving DNA repair genes are present at a high frequency in metastatic prostate cancer patients. In published series, um, 10%, um, and that to me is high enough to warrant doing genetic testing for all patients with advanced disease, not just for therapy selection. These patients can respond better to platinum chemotherapy or PARP inhibitors, but also because of the very important family implications. And it's not easy to adopt because, you know, there is a challenges of getting genetic counseling, getting genetic testing, but I believe the value in doing genetic testing is very important. That's germline testing. As far as somatic testing, tumor testing, this is also becoming increasingly relevant as we have new drugs that are targeted to specific aberrations. Um, there's not really good guidelines as to whether you should do a, a metastatic biopsy and when. I typically wait to the castration resistance state to think about doing this, um, thinking about patients' subsequent line of therapies and clinical trials that are available. Um, but that's still an area where it's still un unclear guidelines at this point. And what genes in particular do you test for? Well, the things that I'm interested in, I mean, we t I tend to do panel testing, um, but the thing that's things that I'm interested in are DNA repair, as I mentioned, either somatic or germline to select patients for PARP inhibitors or platinum chem trials or or even off-label. I also am interested in mismatch repair to look for that small percentage of patients that might be amenable to immunotherapy. And then there are other, I think, very interesting clinically relevant aberrations that are emerging from some of our the collaborative efforts looking across metastatic biopsies, such as the prognostic value of RB loss, for instance, and AR aberrations, which are both prognostic and potentially 
negatively predictive of bio, of response to AR pathway inhibitors. Um, how to actually implement these types of alterations in the clinic is not really clear because there's not necessarily a treatment that they predict. But I think as we learn more about the landscape uh, and as we incorporate these into our um, trials, I think we'll learn much more about the predictive and the prognostic value of, of a common aberration. Well, curiosity does not always kill the cat. So I think it's very important that we know the answers to these sorts of things. Now, to get these answers, though, we need to be doing biopsies of some sort. What do you think is the ideal way to biopsy? Are we biopsying tissue? Are we doing liquid biopsy? What do you do now? What do you think the future will be? I think that now I I tend to do metastatic biopsies mainly because, you know, we want the tissue for genomic sequencing. We sometimes we need pathology assessment, but that's obviously invasive for patients and not something that we would love like to do serial and especially our advanced prostate patients that are, you know, elderly and maybe sick and might have comorbidities. I think that liquid biopsies are very attractive. Circulating tumor DNA is, you know, sort of making its way in clinical trials and in clinical practice. There are a number of commercial assays that are available. None of them, in my mind, are optimized for prostate cancer, but I think can provide some valuable information. And again, there's pros and cons to different assays at the moment, but um, I hope that we'll be moving more non-invasively in the future. Fantastic. Let's move on to something that you mentioned in your talk, was this, that in the metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer, we're seeing two subsets, different subsets, some that are still very highly androgen receptor driven and those that are not. Can you explain more for our listeners what that represents? Sure. I mean, many of our treatments, as you know, target the androgen receptor. And so the the tumors develop treatment resistance. And most of the time it's through reactivation of androgen receptor signaling. Tumors develop multiple ways to try to reactivate androgen receptor signaling because it's such a key, um, important signaling factor in prostate cancer in general. This could be through mutations, splice variants, structural rearrangements, and that's the majority of prostate cancers as they develop resistance. But there are a smaller subset of, of patient tumors where they, they develop, they bypass androgen receptor and they develop alternative means to grow and they, they tend to lose dependence on the androgen receptor. And this is associated with diff- reactivation of different pathways. And I think understanding um, resistance pathways is providing clues into different therapeutic strategies for treatment resistance. And as drugs move earlier, we have to anticipate resistance and try to develop a means to um, combat different various forms of, of these types of treatment resistance. Oh, Misha, you're, you're doing very well. I want to trouble you for one last question. You had a great little discussion around the importance of visceral metastases and how they really might be different to the other metastases we see in prostate cancer. Can you expand on that for our listeners? Sure. Liver metastases in particular have been associated with much worse prognosis when looking across all phase three clinical trials compared to lung versus bone versus lymph node. And I think understanding the differences between these types of patients and the the visceral mets were underrepresented in some of our clinical trials and really sort of teasing out these bad actors and developing therapies that might specifically benefit this subgroup doesn't mean that they're all that they won't respond to AR pathway inhibitors, but I think we need to do better for this population. And last, but definitely not least, I chatted with Shanine Sandu from the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre. She gave a great talk on personalised therapy in patients with advanced prostate cancers and germline and sporadic mutations, and what this means in the exciting new era of immunotherapies. You started your talk with a, we're not there yet, but we're moving in the right direction. What does this mean? Okay, so I suppose what I mean by that is we're, there is now some data to support that actually about 10% of men with 
metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer uh, will have an underlying DNA repair defect, sometimes within the homologous recombination and mismatch repair pathways. And what that means for men is essentially if you've got one of those uh, genetic changes, then it may well be that you can use that information to personalize a guide treatment. So, for example, those patients may benefit from a PARP inhibitor or from platinum. And if they've got a mismatch repair defect, they may well benefit from immunotherapy. And there are a number of clinical trials in that space. I suppose what I mean by we're not there yet is there are lots of gaps currently. There's gaps in our knowledge. So, for example, we don't know whether all the genetic changes within the homologous recombination or DNA repair pathway will behave in the same way to these treatments that we would like to give patients. We don't know whether we should be treating these patients slightly differently in terms of chemotherapy and uh, other novel AR-targeted agents. Um, There is a little bit of data, but we need to validate that data in larger cohorts. And we also need, in the Australian setting, to try and figure out how we implement this as part of routine care and how the cost is covered. You're one of the key investigators or designers of the TOPAP study. What did we learn from that? So that was a, a study which was, was designed on the premise that there was a subset of patients who would benefit from either a platinum or a PARP inhibitor. And what we learned from that is that actually about a third of men, well, slightly under a third of men, actually have genetic changes within the tumour and or genetic changes within the germline, which is you know what they've inherited from their parents, that may confer the tumor to be sensitive to certain drugs and that we are in the position to start identifying these patients and offering them better treatments. You also, in your talk, spoke about that not all BRCA mutations are created equal. What implications does this have for our use of PARP inhibitors? So I think from what we know, certainly in ovarian cancer, A lot of those patients have been previously exposed to platinums and sometimes a prior exposure to a platinum can confer resistance to a PARP inhibitor. We're more fortunate in prostate cancer in that most patients have not had prior exposure to a platinum. But in reality, not all patients with BRCA mutations will respond to a PARP inhibitor. And what we need to understand is what are the genetic changes within the genes itself and how they are impacting function. And then we need to try and understand that in the broader context of what is the makeup of the other genes within the tumor as well. Okay. Back on the BRCA mutation or the germline mutation prevalence, what is the difference of these mutations in the different patient populations that we see all the way from normal patients to early cancer, late cancer? So I think it's it's better in prostate cancer to not just consider the BRCA1 and the BRCA2 mutations, but to consider the other mutations that are also involved in that pathway. And if we look at that data, we would find that in a general population, the incidence is approximately, you know, 1 to 3%. If we look at localized prostate, men with localized prostate cancer, then it really depends on are they low-risk localized prostate cancer patients, in which case the incidence is about 1.4%, so not much more than the um, the general population. Or if we look at high risk, then it can actually go up to about 8% or 9%, so it can be quite high. And then if you look at the men with metastatic prostate cancer, the incidence goes up to about 10 to 11%. And so for me, what that means is that when we're looking at men with advanced prostate cancer, they're enriched for the patients who have actually got a genetic basis for 
the biology being more aggressive and predisposing them to acquiring metastatic disease over time. Okay, well, those numbers are quite high. So who should we be testing for germline mutations? The new guidelines would suggest that actually we should be offering genetic testing to all men with metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer and men with high-risk localized prostate cancer because the incidence in those two populations is actually fairly high. And you finished your talk with challenging the current status quo that we sort of have this idea that immuno-oncology agents are not necessarily useful due to a low mutational load, but you sort of, you had some data to discredit that or not discredit, but to suggest that we should be looking back at these agents now. Yeah, so I suppose I feel that, unfortunately, we have not had as much success in prostate cancer as we've had with lung cancer and melanoma, where it's been a real game changer and many patients with advanced disease are surviving many, many years and are free of disease. And my hope is that we would get there with prostate cancer. And one of the key things is to try and understand that there's a subset of patients that will benefit just from a single agent immunotherapy, but we those patients have got genetic changes and we need to try and understand what is it about those patients that make them great candidates for single-agent immunotherapy drugs. And then there's a broader group of men with prostate cancer where the tumor is somehow immunosuppressed and we need to start to understand what is making that tumor immunosuppressed so that we can start targeting the key steps within that pathway that are, are preventing the immune system from recognizing the cancer. Thank you for joining us today. And whilst that's the end of this particular podcast, it's not the end of the highlights from Prospect 2019. There was so much gold at this conference that we could not fit it all into one podcast. So stay tuned for part two and remember to subscribe to talkingoncology.com.au or follow us on Twitter at Talking Oncology for the latest podcast releases. This podcast was produced by Joseph Iskier and Kara Webb and made possible by the generous support of Janssen. Views and opinions expressed in this presentation are those of the presenters alone and are not necessarily reflective of the views and opinion of Janssen Select Proprietary Limited or any employees thereof. This information is not medical advice and no decision relating to the management of any patient should be made with reliance on the information contained in this presentation. It's your responsibility to prescribe appropriate treatment in accordance with your clinical judgment and by reference to the appropriate Australian product information or other information supplied with the relevant product, including in relation to any indication, dosage and route of administration. So if you're still with us after that discussion, Disclaimer, I hope you join us for the second part of Prospect. This Talking Oncology podcast was proudly brought to you by Janssen.